Well, good morning again. I couldn't get anybody else, and so here I am, you know. I'm glad, glad to be here. I kind of got stuck earlier whenever uh, Jason said they weren't, we weren't having supper Wednesday night. I haven't even told my wife yet that we're not having supper Wednesday night. I, uh, when I get home, I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them up, please, to Luke 24. Luke 24. We're going to read through some scriptures there that uh, will help us focus this morning. Luke 24 begins. We're going to read several scriptures. This time we're going to read verses uh, 13 all the way up to verse 36. So it's 23 verses. Uh, If you don't have, uh, there's Bibles in in the pew in front of you, and I think it's going to be on the screen overhead, uh, so you'll be able to, to see it. Let's begin with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning having worshipped you in song, having focused our hearts and our minds, hopefully away from all the things of the world, the flesh, or even those things of the devil, and, and tried to focus most on, on you, on what it means to be finally free, on what it means to see your glory multiplied in us. God, we just ask you now to take the words of my mouth as well as the meditations of my heart and use them to accomplish the purposes that you have for the people that are known as Highland Park Baptist Church. God, everybody here today, was not a, <laughs> it's not a surprise to you that they are here. And you didn't just bring them here to sit through a talk or listen to some songs or sing or other things. God, you brought them here because you love them. And you want to teach them just as you have taught me and others. So we submit ourselves now to you, Lord God Almighty. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, not only to fill this place, but to fill every one of us. So that we can hear and understand and know what we are to do. How we are to live. What, what needs to be changed. Anything that we need to repent of. Now, anything that we need to strengthen, anything that we need to put off or put on, God, please use the time remaining as you have used the time before to work in us individually and corporately. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, oh boy, that was a weak one right there. Altogether, the word is amen. Are you ready? One, two, three. Amen. Yeah, sound like a Pentecostal congregation here. Yeah, amen, brother. Um, this is an interesting story. Uh, the Christian calendar, not, not just the calendar, but the Christian calendar is made up of, you know, uh, the incarnation, God the Son becoming Jesus of Nazareth, and obviously the life of Jesus. In comes what is called uh, the Last Supper, which is on the Thursday night before Good Friday, which is the day that Jesus was crucified on. Then Resurrection Sunday, commonly called Easter, is on that Sunday. Following that is 40 days that Jesus works with the disciples. And then comes what is known as the Ascension, when Jesus returned to heaven. And then 10 days after that is the day of Pentecost, which is when the day of the Holy Spirit came and filled the church. Now, this, the text that we read today takes place between the resurrection and the ascension. As a matter of fact, it is on Resurrection Sunday, on that Easter Sunday. And it takes place that evening before Jesus has appeared uh, to all of the people together there. He's appeared to the women, and as the man said, to Simon, but he's not appeared to the whole group. And so you can imagine there's this whole group of people. Uh, John says in John chapter 20 that they were behind locked doors. For fear. So whatever the group was, it's not just the apostles. Probably need to clarify that uh, all of the apostles were disciples, but every disciple is not an apostle. Does that make sense? Jesus chose 12 of his disciples to be his apostles. 
And so some of the apostles, there's 11 of them now. Judas has hung himself. There's 11 of them, and they are gathered along with other people. You'll see in the Scripture there were, there were women there, the women at the, that saw Jesus crucified. They were there, Mary, Mary Magdalene, uh, others, uh, Salome, that are, that are there. And so there's this place somewhere, maybe even the upper room, where they're all hiding out, so to speak. Now, now they're afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. And so that's why they're all there, kind of hidden away together. Well, two of them decide, we're going home. We, they lived in a village that was about seven miles uh, west of Jerusalem. And so these two start going, walking home. And obviously there's a crowd. It's Passover weekend. Passover's over. So a lot of people who came to Jerusalem for Passover are now going back home. And they're walking along. And the Bible says that what they're doing is they're, they are discussing, they're talking about these things, discussing them. The word that they're, that's used there is actually the word that can be translated debating or arguing or, or talking or conversing. It's basically they were talking about what had happened. And the reason, I think, Kurt's opinion, I think the reason they were debating and arguing is because they really didn't understand what all had happened. When they, when they saw, you notice down here it says, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. As far as they were concerned, he hadn't done it. As far as they concerned, all of the hopes that they had in Jesus were no longer hope. It's almost as if you could say, we had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, but we don't hope that anymore. We don't have that hope anymore because he's dead. And not only, not only did he die, but, but these women who were with our group, they went and they looked for his body and it wasn't there. And they came back with this giant story about angels. And see, uh, there's something called chronological snobbery. C.S. Lewis uh, introduced the term. Chronological snobbery is to suppose that our current generation is smarter than any generation that ever has lived. If that's what it is. And so basically we look back and we say, well, you know, back there in that time, they all believed in angels. They all believed in resurrection. No, they didn't. They really didn't. They didn't believe in it any more than you did. And so when these ladies come back and say there were, there were angels there, his body's gone. They said that he's alive. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And so they came back to tell all this stuff. So they're debating this, discussing it, trying to figure out what in the world is going on? Jesus comes up with them and starts walking. Now, there's numbers of theories why they couldn't recognize him. The Bible doesn't tell us why they couldn't recognize him. So all we can do is speculate. And we're good at that, aren't we? We can guess. You know, like uh, uh, I've read several theories in the scholars. One scholar said that the reason they couldn't recognize him is that they were heading home when the sun was going down, which is in the west. And that they were walking towards Emmaus, which is in the west, and therefore the sun was in their eyes, and they couldn't see clearly. That's one explanation. Another explanation was that Jesus had a hood over his head. You know, he like, like homie. You know, he's walking around with his hood up, and he's got the hood over his head, and, and, and they couldn't see his face. Uh, others say that just supernaturally that Jesus did some sort of a, you will not be able to recognize me, and said that, and so they couldn't. The truth is, we don't know why they couldn't recognize him. It says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And so Jesus, Jesus says, what are y'all talking about? You know, or as we say up in my hometown of Union, what y'all talking about? Jesus, and, they, and they said, are you the only one? 
You're coming from Jerusalem. Are you the only person that doesn't know everything that's happened recently? And Jesus says this. I love it. Jesus says, what things? What things? What are you talking about? Now, what he's doing there, you know, whenever Jesus asks a question, there's always a very good reason. And it's not just a simple question. He's not asking for information. He's the Son of God. But what he's saying is, why don't you tell me what things you're talking about? And that's when they go into this explanation and they talk about Jesus. They say, interestingly enough, he was a man who was a prophet. A man who was a prophet. Now, today we have an advantage. We look back and we say, well, they didn't know, did they? They didn't know and they didn't understand. But there was this man who was a prophet. He was mighty in deed and word. In other words, he did mighty things and he taught mighty teachings. And he was, he was just wonderful. He did all of that. And they were thinking back to the things that they knew that Jesus had taught and the things that Jesus had done. And then, then they go on to say, you know, some other things happened, though. Our religious leaders, our chief priests and rulers. And what he's saying there is that the religious leaders condemned him or had him turned over to the Romans asking for his condemnation. The Romans gave that condemnation and Jesus was crucified. Now, they didn't have to say Jesus died because when you were crucified, you died. No one survived Roman crucifixion. And so in order to make sure Jesus was dead, they pierced his side with a sword, with a a spear. So they knew Jesus was dead. And then they go on and say, and not only that, they say his his body is gone. And Jesus then says to them, oh, you foolish ones. Now, Don't get confused. There's two words. There's more than two, but there are two primary words that are used for the word foolish or foolish or fool. One of them is the Greek word moros. We get our word. What word do we get from that in English? Moron. That's right. Moron. Now, moron is somebody that's that's uh, uh, as my little granddaughter. My little granddaughter loves the word stupid. She's not allowed to say stupid. So she tries to find places to say stupid. She would love to find books that say, but she doesn't say stupid. She says stupid. She's stupid. Moros really means kind of stupid, kind of ignorant, not, not having good sense. That's what moros is. That's not the word Jesus here. Jesus is not saying you guys are morons. He's not saying that. What he's saying is the word that actually means you don't really understand. You know, there's a difference in being stupid and not understanding. He's saying, you guys don't really understand. And he says, wasn't it necessary that the Messiah would have to die? And what he's showing us here is that the sins of of humanity were being dealt with by the just God who came himself to die in our place. Died on the cross. So God has actually been a just God by punishing sin But God has taken that punishment on himself. That's what he's saying. In order for forgiveness to be facilitated, God Almighty became Jesus the Christ who died on the cross and set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. And he's saying that's what's necessary. But then he says, let's go all the way back 
to Moses. And when he says Moses, we believe the first five books were written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses. What he did is Jesus started back in Genesis. Now, Jesus didn't recite every word of all the books in the Old Testament. But he went through the Old Testament and showed, and showed them how all the way back from Genesis, all the way up to here, you could see what the prophecies about Jesus and about his dying on the cross. Some of the scholars that are considerably more learned than I am say that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of between 300 and 350 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Everything from where he was born, Bethlehem, to his mother being a virgin, to his dying on the cross, taking the place for our sins, to his being resurrected. There, and Jesus shows them all of these things. It's like, it's like having, having a preacher and a teacher who is Jesus himself who takes the Old Testament and helps you to understand it. Well, he's doing all of this, and then they get to their village, and Jesus is acting like he's going on, and they say, no, stay some more. So Jesus stayed with them, and as he took the bread and broke it, suddenly it says their eyes were open, and they recognized him. They knew this is Jesus. He is alive. We, we have just seen Jesus. And one of them says to the other, didn't our hearts burn as he opened to us the scriptures? They got up, and I believe, this, this is my understanding of the text, I think they ran back to Jerusalem. They did a 10K. It's about 7 miles. It's 6.2 miles is a 10K. They did a 10K running back. And obviously they were part of the group in that room hidden because they knew where to go to find the others. They went back there and the others opened the door to them. And they went in and they said, Jesus is alive. And suddenly Jesus appears in the middle of the room with all of those people and says, peace to you. And of course, I didn't read this text, but they're afraid then. They think it's a ghost. They believe it's a ghost, and Jesus says it's not a ghost. He says, you got anything to eat? You know, and um, they gave him a piece of fish, and Jesus ate the fish. Now, I'm pretty excited about that revelation right there because uh, my Facebook friends told me they love to follow where I go to eat, and I eat a lot of good places in Charleston, uh, and they're just as a great restaurant. Could this possibly mean? Now, I'm not saying this is true, but this is my idea. Is it possible that there will be shrimp and grits in heaven? I, I think so, too. Bound to be, you know. And collards and, and fried chicken and all that stuff. You know? but, but he does that. And then the Bible says that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And they understood and they understood, of course, you know, Thomas wasn't there that day. Thomas doesn't really believe it. And he said, look, I want to see the holes in his hands and in his feet. I want to stick my hand in his side. And if I don't do all of that, I will not believe. I won't believe at all. The next week, Jesus shows up and he turns and says, hey, Tommy, come here a minute, buddy. You want to, how about that? You want to? And Thomas falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said that powerful sentence over in John 20. Blessed are you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. That's you and me. We didn't see the holes in his hands or in his feet or in his side. And yet, yet we believe. I think this is a, one of the most wonderful stories about Easter. And the part I love about it is that we're kind of like watching it. We know stuff they don't know. 
We're kind of watching it happen to them, you know, and we read these things like there's, like, when Jesus says what things, we're going, I could probably tell him some of that, but we know how it all turns out. Well, there's some key points in this scripture. One is that he opened their eyes. The other is that he opened the scriptures. Then it says he opened their minds, and it's all the word opened. And the idea is more than like a closed book. It's he is giving them understanding that they previously didn't have before. Now, here, here's a reality. They had an accumulation or collection of facts, but they didn't understand what they all meant. But like us today, just because we don't understand things doesn't mean we won't discuss it. We talk things over with people. We, all we have is bits and pieces. But what Jesus did was Jesus took all of these facts like, like puzzle pieces and put them all together where there was a place where these men could go, oh, oh, that's, that's what was going on here. So, you know, you and I, we can read the papers and look at all kind of stuff and read facts today, and we think we know what's going on. Let me just say to you that it is an error. Once again, Kurt's opinion. It is an error to watch the news about what some political or business or world figure is doing and think that you understand. You may know the facts, but you may not know the understanding of what's going on. And we just don't have that, that ability. But here, what we see in this story, that Jesus gave these men a fuller understanding of what had happened, what the gospel was really about. And the advantage for us, we have today three things available to us that are available to us today, disciples of Jesus, to help us understand, to help us get a broader picture. In other words, we have today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you are a born-again disciple of Jesus, there are three things that I know you have, because the Scripture says so, that will enable you and help you to understand what's going on around you. To understand what's going on inside of you. To understand scripture and all of those things. There's, there's three things and I want to talk about each one of them and elaborate on a little bit. The first thing you have if you're a disciple of Jesus is the Holy Spirit of Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of Jesus. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. God is three in one. Not three gods. One God in three persons. God the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 has a powerful couple of verses, 16, verses 16 and 17. And it says this. Is it up there? How, how about read it with me? Would you read it with me? Okay. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, now you can read that verse as we did uh, on uh, Sunday nights uh, uh, when I was here in March. That we put our personal pronouns in there. And you can take that less you, that is you and I, or I put I, I know him, for he, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, 
He not only dwells with me, he will be in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And that's, that's not uh, some theologian later saying that. That's Jesus saying that. And then the Apostle Paul, a few decades later, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Bible teaches us in Romans that if the Holy Spirit does not live in you, you're not saved. When, when you repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. He lives in you. And it's not a swinging door. Uh, I, I, uh, when I got saved, uh, I, I, got a hand, I, I was trying to decide what denomination was I going to go with. Isn't that something? So I got a book called Mead's Handbook of Denominations, and I read every one of them. I read all the way through them there, and I concluded that the one that I resonated the most with was the Baptist, the Baptist faith. And that's how I became a Southern Baptist. And then Southern Baptist because I like the missions program. I think that's the right way to do missions. And so I became a Baptist. But one of the Baptist doctrines that we believe in is called the perseverance of the saints, which is called eternal security, which means that you are saved because the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. Now, there are times when you are filled with the Holy Spirit where you're able to understand, but He doesn't leave you. He stays with you. He lives in you. And the Holy Spirit, when you're wanting to know, how do I understand what the Holy Spirit does in me? Here's some of the things the Bible says that He does. The Holy Spirit teaches. He's the one who teaches us. He's the one who helps us remember. He's the one who convicts us of sin. He guides us into truth. He teaches us what to say when we're persecuted. He empowers us to witness. He pours out God's love into us. He sanctifies us. He seals us or secures us in Jesus Christ. He produces godly fruit in us. Now, I didn't list all of them. Those are just some of them. That's what God the Holy Spirit does in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you and helps you to understand what is going on and things like that. I remember uh, some years ago, actually when I first went to seminary, my, uh, we were in seminary at Southwestern out in Texas. And my dad got sick and they gave him uh, only a year to live. So we moved back, uh, back east up to Union, moved in with my wife's mother and uh, lived there. And I was looking for a place to preach. I really wanted to preach somewhere. You know, I needed, you know, we have this thing called income that pastors need too. And so I was looking, you know, for a place to preach, and we couldn't find hardly anywhere to preach. You know, I couldn't figure it out. I thought just that, you know, the Lord, Lord there's got to be a place. And so we went to this one place, and I preached there, and they invited me back the next week, and then the next week, and then the next week. And then finally they said, we want you to be our preacher. And I said, all right, you know, yeah, here we go. We get to buy groceries next week. Yes. I was feeling really good about it. And I turned to Joyce, and I said, uh, that's my wife. I said, uh, honey, what you think about that? And she, got, she did this. You know what that means. Guys, you know what it means when your wife does this, right? You do know, right? You understand body language. Uh, she said, uh, well, I don't think that's where we're supposed to go. And I said, oh, great. Now, we, now we, have, we had a covenant in my marriage. If, the, if we didn't agree, the answer was no. That was what we did. 
And so we didn't agree. And so uh, it went on for two or three, I don't know, maybe four weeks. They, they would call every week, and I would go back to her, and I'd say, Honey, what do you think, you know? And she would say, Well, I don't think, you know. And so I'm praying, Oh, Holy Spirit of God, change that stubborn woman's mind. You know she's got a problem. Change her mind. You know, oh, God. And I'd fall down on my face, you know, and I'd recite the Lord's Prayer, and I'd pray, Your kingdom come and your will be done in Joyce. In Joyce, you know. I mean, I'm praying all of that, you know. And so finally we got towards the last week, and I went to her, and they called again. And I said, well, babe, she said, look, uh, I believe that you're the leader of our home. God appointed you to be the leader of our family. So if you think we should go, I'll go with you and never bring it up again and support you and love you. If you want to know what I think, I don't think we should. So I called them and said no. And, and that night, I didn't understand at all what God was up to. I had no idea what God was up to. The next morning, before lunch, I got a call from a pastor in a little place called Goose Creek, South Carolina, who said, I'm looking for a youth pastor, and I know you're headed towards the pastorate, but I really need you to come here and help me. Could we meet and talk? And I, of course, I said yes. Met him in Columbia. His name was Jim Heron. He was a pastor there for years, and Jim was, is now one of my mentors. Jim is 87 years old. He lives up in Rock Hill. I learned more from that man than I did from all of my classes in college and seminary because I, I learned from him. Now, I look back at that, and I realize here's the Holy Spirit working in my wife to, to show her that we just weren't a good fit. For that little church over in that place called Williston. A little place called Williston outside of uh, Aiken. And so I, I see that the Holy Spirit works in us like that. And he teaches. And what he taught me then was that I don't know everything. He's taught me that several times, by the way. But he's also taught me that the two of us are stronger than the one of us. Joyce and I have a complementary relationship that doesn't mean we, we say nice things to each other, compliments. That means complement, like C-O-M-P-L-E meant, means that her strengths are my weaknesses. My strengths are her weaknesses, but together. And the Holy Spirit taught me that. He taught me that. So, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you to teach you, to show you, to guide you, to help you, to do all of these things up here. And it is the Holy Spirit that is sanctifying you, making you more holy. So you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You may not be aware of what he's doing. You may not even be, recognize it, but he's there. He is there. Second thing you have that, that they didn't have. By the way, those two guys on the road to Emmaus, they didn't have that. The Holy Spirit had not come yet. That's why I told you about the calendar. At Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came to live in people. Prior to this, the Holy Spirit would come on people and then leave. Come on people and then leave. But right here, it's Jesus teaching these men. And Jesus does all of these things through his Holy Spirit in you. But the second thing we have that they had only a part of is the Scriptures. We have the Scriptures here. You know, uh, in in Verse 27 of that particular story, that Luke 24 story. Here, Listen to this. Verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures everything concerning himself. In verse 31, 
He says, and their eyes were opened, they recognized him, he vanished. Verse 32, he said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then down in verse 45, it says, then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. God has given us the scriptures to give us guidance and teaching and helping in order to understand. You know, most of us try to understand what's going on in the world by reading the newspapers. And I'm not saying don't read the papers. But what I'm saying is read the scriptures to understand what's going on in the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 17 says this. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God uses the Scripture to help us understand. I don't, uh, I don't do uh, weddings anymore. Um, it's just, the reason is, is because I require uh, several, sometimes five to six counseling sessions before the marriage uh, because I'm more concerned about the marriage than I am the wedding. So, so I, don't, I don't really do, a lot, I don't do weddings anymore because I can't do the counseling. However, I'm coaching 42 pastors right now. And one of the things I've told those pastors is if their adult children want to get married, I'll do the counseling. I won't do the wedding, but I'll, I'll do the counseling. This past week, I was counseling a young couple. And uh, we, this was a, uh, the session of counseling where we got really deep into the scriptures. And they had read everything where it says husbands and wives. They read all of those. Husbands do this. Wives do this. You know, they, you know the, the guy had read the part about submitting to your husband over and over. And he'd memorized that part. You know, and so, but, you know, but anyway, we're reading all that. So I said, okay, now turn to Matthew 18. And they look kind of puzzled at one another. Matthew 18, and they, they don't remember reading Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, go to your brother alone and talk about it. If you've won your brother, that's great. But if, he, if that doesn't work, get two or three others to go with you to talk about it. If that doesn't work, tell it to the church. And, and uh, I read this in, in uh, the, the lady, her name's Jean. Jean said, uh, Pastor... Uh, I'm not really sure I understand. How does this apply to marriage? I said, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? She said, yes. And I asked her husband, I mean, to be husband, are you a believer? Yes. Matter of fact, I know they were because I, I won't marry them if they're not. But, uh, and they said, well, I said, then, then this instruction is not just for two men and two members of a church or two people who are believers that live in different countries. This is for two believers. What it says is, when you have a conflict in your marriage, what it says is, wife, you're to talk to your husband first alone before you talk to anybody. Husband, you're to talk to your wife alone before you talk to anybody. And I turned to her and I said, that means you can't call your mama when you have a disagreement with your husband. You're to talk to him first. And you can't go to work and talk to your buddy. You gotta talk to her first. And she said, you know, I never understood that. I never, un I said, well, there you go. There it is, because the scriptures have shown us that there are patterns of life that we live because we are followers of Jesus Christ. I didn't fully understand scripture uh, about disciplining yourself until I read through and realized that grace does not exclude effort. You know, it's still grace, but you, you do discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. It's not just lay down and let God do a lobotomy and make you holy. 
You know, God says work, work on it. Then the third thing that God gives us is the church. It's the people of God. So you have the Holy Spirit, you have uh, the Scriptures, and you have the church. And now, once again, the church is not the building. That's probably one of the greatest errors that history has caused over the years. The word church is the word ecclesia. We get our word ecclesiastical from that. Ecclesia means the people. It is the people. The people of God. You know, this is a church, this is a building where the church meets. And what we've done is over the years, we've kind of communicated that whenever we're not here, that God's still here. That somehow God's in this building. And so we're careful. I remember saying, well, no, we don't do this in the church. We don't do that in the church. And I'm thinking, well, we are the church. Where, where two or more are gathered, that is the church. You see, we really do need each other to understand. There are 59 one-anothers in the New Testament that can only be carried out in the context of a community of faith. Here's some of them. This isn't, I'm only, I didn't put up all of them, but I put up some of them. Love one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. See, all of us need people who will speak truth to us. Even if it's two guys discussing something, then they're not really sure what they're talking about. The Holy Spirit and the Scripture and then biblical community is where people come together and learn. It's where all of us need someone who will speak truth into our life. Not just somebody that sends us a card when we're sick or, or bakes a cake or takes a meal when there's a death. We're talking about people who speak truth to us. Who will rebuke us when we're wrong. Uh, several years ago, matter of fact, it's been 26 years ago, uh, I was at Midland Park Baptist Church and God had grown the church. And there were more people there than when I had come. And so I figured it was time to go. We Baptist preachers, you know, there used to be a, 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 an actual average that we only stayed between two and three years in a church and then moved on. And so I figured I'd been there four years. It was time to go. I was meeting in a group of pastors that included, matter of fact, Ron Dillon, who was here last week, uh, Marshall Blaylock, Tim Head, who was at Lighthouse and formerly Cooper River Church, Rob Heath, who was at uh, Remount Church, and uh, Tom Brown, who was at James Island. And I went to them and I told these guys, because we met every Friday morning, and they had, they had the authority in my life to say, you're wrong. I mean, this is beyond promise keeper stuff. This is you're, you're not going in the right direction. And I told him, I said, guys, it's time for me to move on. Let me give you my resume and see if you can get it out there. You know, I was, I was thinking, you know, maybe I need to drop it out of a plane over a large city somewhere, try to find another church to go to. And so all these guys, you know, together, we prayed through that, prayed through that. And after we prayed through it, they came and they said, well, we don't think you should go. And I said, why, what are you talking about? They said, why do you want to leave Midland Park? I said, because I don't know what to do next. You know, God has grown the church from this size to this size, and I'm not sure how do you lead a larger church. I've, I've not done that. I, you know, I did what God told me to do, turn it around, but I don't know what to do next. And so those guys said, here's what we think. We think you need to learn how to do what you don't know how to do. Because I submitted to these men's authority in my life, I started going to conferences, I started reading books, I went back to get another degree, did all kind of stuff like that to learn how to do what I didn't know how to do. Now, what if I didn't have those people in my life? What if I didn't, and let me just say to you that that's, pray about this, because my ministry with pastors shows me that 
the average pastor doesn't have people who will talk to him like that. Other pastors that will speak truth. And you know why that is? It's because the average church member doesn't have that either. We have friends. We have associates. We have people that, you know, that we hang out with and tell jokes and watch ball games and do, uh, do all kind of stuff. Maybe even go on trips and do all that. But we have no one really in our lives who will say, you know, that is absolutely wrong. You, you need to reconsider that. Not in a judgmental way, but rather in a way that says, please think about this. And see, we have now, God has chosen to give us in the church the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, and biblical community. And I'm not talking about just, you know, I know a couple of people. I'm talking about a relationship where you can really speak truth to one another and they can speak truth to you. We need that because that is how God guides us. That is how God directs us. That is how God opens our eyes. The Holy Spirit, Scriptures, and biblical community. Would you pray with me? Now, I don't know which one of those three are the ones that you need to think about, work on, or pray about, or or understand. But I'm encouraging you now to, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. To, to fill you with himself. That, and what that really means is to say, Oh God, God the Spirit, may your kingdom come and your will be done in me as it is in heaven. It's, it's to say, Oh God, I submit to you. I resist the devil. I crucify the flesh and love not the world. I want to walk in your ways. Please, Holy Spirit, fill me, teach me, guide me, strengthen me, correct me. Do all the things that you do in me. It may be that you need to say, Lord, I I need to begin studying the Scriptures differently from just knowing the content. I need to understand what you're teaching me, how you're speaking to me, to my heart. Just as Jesus spoke to the men on the road to Emmaus, speak to my heart. Please use the Scriptures. Help me not just to know the stories and the facts of the stories but to understand the stories and to grasp how that affects my life. And God, I'm praying now that you would please help every person in this room who does not have at least one or two intimate relationships with other Christians where they do life together in order to do life together. God, would you please open their eyes to see who they can get in community with that they can deepen their relationships with other Christians. Lord, I also pray this morning for any person maybe gathered today who has never given their life to Jesus. I pray that if this is the day of their salvation, that today they will not leave here without praying, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this prayer, and I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.